Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. We'll begin this episode by looking at Parabola editor Tracy Cochran's essay, Fusterlandia, from our spring 2018 issue, Wealth. I stood on the upper deck of a cruise ship at dawn as it slowly drew into Havana Harbor. The buildings were low and dark compared to the high-rise dazzle of Miami, our point of departure. Cuba is only 90 miles from Key West, the port we set sail from the night before, but it looked as if we were traveling back in time. As a child of the Cold War, I had the sensation of gliding into a world that looked as strangely preserved as it was when it first closed to Americans in 1961. Cuba still isn't really open. Up until the day before, lawyers for the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line had negotiated with U.S. government officials about what we would be able to do and see given recently tightened sanctions. And the limitations were not just political. We could spend cash only, convertible pesos or U.S. dollars, no credit cards because there is virtually no internet. The Cuban government blames the crumbling telecommunications infrastructure on the United States trade embargo in place since the 1960s. Dissidents blame government censorship. A professor on the ship explained that if we happened to see a big cluster of people sitting together on the Malacan seawall that surrounds Havana, it would mean that someone had found a rare hotspot. The morning air was soft and warm. Passengers stood along the rails watching and filming on phones. The quiet was a striking change from the usual party atmosphere on the upper pool deck, the music and entertainment, the endless towels and food and drinks dispensed by smiling attendants. Most of the early risers, including my sister and me, had already chosen a breakfast from a ridiculously lavish buffet. But out on deck there was a pause, as if people recognized that something quietly amazing seemed to be happening. Only recently have American cruise ships been allowed to dock in Havana. According to ship officials, everyone aboard, even those from other countries, was an American tourist by virtue of traveling on the ship. And yet, I wanted to be more than a tourist. I wasn't coming as a pilgrim exactly, but I wanted to see. Seeing is more than looking, I knew, and it doesn't happen often. It is an act of opening to receive impressions, and it requires that we see ourselves. In the distance stood Morro Castle guarding the harbor and the statue of Christ of Havana blessing it. Instead of arms outstretched like the famous Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, this statue of Christ keeps his elbows close to his sides. The local joke is that he looks like he's holding a cigar in one hand and a mojito in the other. Rum drinks and cigars, streets full of interesting little shops, music, and street performers. This is the brochure version of Havana. Welcome to Jamaica, said the smiling young official waiting for us on the dock as beautiful women serenaded us with guitars. His just highlighted how different this Caribbean experience would be. After immigration, we boarded a bus provided by the government-approved Havana Tours and drove through broad avenues and side streets and buildings that are visibly crumbling. The decay is due to many causes, among them the U.S. trade embargo and the collapse of the Soviet Union, which provided crucial subsidies. Yet on peeling walls everywhere is the famous image of Ernesto Che Guevara, the Argentinian-born hero of the Cuban Revolution, an icon of the counterculture and revolutionary idealism around the world. 
We drove through a sea of colorful old cars. Our guide explained that the bright and shiny ones were actually rebuilt inside with new Japanese parts and reserved for tourists. The genuinely old ones belched exhaust and broke down frequently. Still, locals depended on these taxis because the trains run so slowly. It was moving and chastening to see Che so often. I saw how I had filed away the image, relegating it to the past, a rebellious dorm room decoration, a doomed phase. But here it was very much alive, a source of patriotism and pride. And our young guide was proud, pointing out what was less visible. There is no problem with racism in Cuba, she said. Everyone is mixed. Dimly, I remembered hearing that when Fidel Castro visited New York, he chose to stay in Harlem. No one has running water all day long, but medical care is universal and excellent, and so is education. Everyone makes almost the same salary in a command economy, and many people supplement their incomes. Tour guides often are professors, too. But there is no abject poverty. We saw no homeless people all day. The bus stopped in Revolution Square, once the scene of past political rallies led by Castro denouncing American imperialism. On this day, it was just a vast and empty space, with tourists debarking from buses, bordered by colorless government office buildings. The space is dominated by a huge monument, not to Castro, whose dying wish was no monuments in his honor, but to Jose Marti, a poet, journalist, and hero to Cubans of all political views because of his passionate commitment to sovereignty, individual as well as national. Marti, who died in 1895, fighting the Spanish for Cuban independence, had lived in New York in the heart of what he called the monster, as I did. He loved aspects of his life there. He championed personal expression, but he said that the United States, in its excessive worship of wealth, has fallen without any of the restraints of tradition into the inequality, injustice, and violence of the monarchies. On the facade of a ministry building opposite the Marti Memorial is the famous visage of Che Guevara, cast in steel and gigantic, underscored by the quotation Hasta la victoria siempre, which means to victory always, Che's parting line to the Cuban people before he went off to foment revolution in the Congo and later in Bolivia, where he was executed by CIA-assisted forces. Right here, taking my turn among crowds of tourists, I posed for a picture with my sister, followed by several selfies. Of course, it was a touristy act, and I saw myself doing it. At one and the same time, I saw an American tourist full of the limiting beliefs and assumptions and habits that came from my conditioning, and also that I was more than this, capable of opening to an awareness that could see for brief moments without judgment and be touched. Everything and everyone is in movement. Nothing and no one is permanent. I looked up at the vast office buildings, the Cuban Revolution now frozen into a giant bureaucratic state. According to the professor who spoke to us on the ship, most Cubans, most of the workers I was looking up at, subscribed to El Paquete, the weekly package, a digital drive of movies, news, instructional videos, ads, and Spanish and English television shows, including Game of Thrones and Keeping Up with the Kardashians, that is delivered to their homes. Like us, they yearn to connect. We were driven to the Christopher Columbus Cemetery, Columbus is credited with discovering Cuba in 1492, where we visited the grave of La Milagrosa. The miraculous one is Cuba's unofficial saint, 
a lovely young woman who died in childbirth in 1901 and was buried with her stillborn son near her feet. According to legend, her tomb was opened in 1914 and she was found to be uncorrupted, a sign of sanctity in both the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church. She was cradling her baby in her arms. To me, this is a creepy story, said a woman standing next to me. It suggests that she was buried alive. And yet for more than a hundred years, people have come to this tomb to pray and make wishes because La Milagrosa represents the power of love and the possibility of incorruptibility, of keeping it all together, no matter what. Our guide encouraged us to enact a ritual that was performed by the young woman's husband when he visited the tomb. He always wrapped one of four brass rings on the tomb, announcing his presence to his wife. He stood before the statue of mother and child, communing, expressing his thoughts, and describing the events of any particular day, always leaving the tomb walking backwards, never turning his back on his beloved. Our guide encouraged us to take turns doing the same. The woman beside me stepped back, but I did it, and so did my sister. Here again I glimpsed the double pull inside. We want to be safe, to come to a state of indestructible unity. But another part of us, that awareness that sometimes appears and sees, senses that our real freedom inevitably involves letting go and loss. Cut a chrysalis open, writes Rebecca Solnit, and you will find a rotting caterpillar. Our lives move from hope to hope, and at bottom all hope is hope for change, and under it all we all long for freedom from selfish to selfless, from petty to profound, with more or less awareness and compassion, we seek freedom from suffering and from separation. We seek ways to be more vibrantly alive, to be with life. Our greatest fear is breaking down and our greatest hope is breaking open. Seeing is a way of opening. I glimpsed this in Fosterlandia. Over a period of 30 years, Jose Rodriguez Foster a Cuban naive artist turned Gemanitas, a tiny fishing town on the outskirts of Havana, into a work of eccentric, beautiful mosaic art. Bit by bit, starting with his own small wooden house, Fuster has transformed some eight houses and shops into a place of surprise and possibility. He had traveled to Europe and seen the work of Gaudi in Barcelona and Brancusi in Romania. His work isn't original so much as an individual affirmation that it is possible to re-envision and transform our lives anywhere and at any time using the materials at hand. The walls and roofs and arches are decorated with mermaids, fish, roosters, and centuria saints here and there in the streets of Havana. We see young women dressed all in white, initiates in what our guide called a nature religion. Fosterlandia includes a park with giant chess pieces, a shrine to Princess Diana, and a mural showing Fidel and Raul Castro and Che Guevara aboard the Granma yacht, sailing from exile in Mexico to bring revolution. Havana harbors many unexpected twists, including a park dedicated not to Vladimir Lenin, but to John Lenin. In 2000, as All You Need Is Love played, Castro unveiled a bronze statue that captures Lenin in his long-hair anti-war activist days. His wire-rimmed glasses have been stolen so often a guard is posted on duty, poised to place the glasses on the statue when visitors appear. Although he initially banned the Beatles' music, Castro came to plays Lenin's thinking and dedication to the working class. 
I share his dreams completely, said Castro at the unveiling. I too am a dreamer who has seen his dreams turn into reality. Yet it is Fusterlandia that offers the clearest evidence that, as Fuster has said, all dreams get realized over time. Just begin, his work instructs. Start where you are. See what you have. Be open to the possibilities. I walked around Fusterlandia, registering that a revolution can happen in a moment, in an action smaller than the placing of one tiny ceramic tile. We can shift from being confined by our limiting thoughts to being in the present moment. We can open to a new life. Let's turn now to Elizabeth Knapp's An Education in Peace. He was walking to the shuttle when he decided to take a shortcut. It was seven in the morning, and he hoped to shave a few minutes off his trip. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a man following him. Something did not seem right, so he walked faster. There was a raised hand and a glint of steel. He woke in a hospital room, surrounded by friends. He did not understand why he was in the room. His left cheek was broken, and he felt nauseous. The police cameras in the neighborhood eventually told him the story. The man following him had attacked him. There was no robbery. There was no theft. The man had attacked him for no material gain. When I asked why he thought this had happened, he simply said, I am an immigrant. Reuben, his name has been changed as the court date approaches, told me this story Friday after school. I had taught him for three years, three different years of social studies, and he would visit periodically to keep me posted on his studies. As a business major in his sophomore year at college, he had been flourishing, but the attack occurred during midterms and he had to postpone taking his examinations. When he did eventually take the examinations, he was dissatisfied with his performance. He wanted higher marks and decided to take the courses again. The attack had made it difficult for him to remember, but with each passing day, his memory was stronger. A friend had caught the attacker. After the incident, the friend decided to retrace Reuben's steps every morning until one morning a man followed him, and when he saw the glint of steel, he ran and called 911. The man was apprehended. The friend Edgar was an orphan. His father had been murdered, and a few years later, his mother had been murdered too. Guatemala was a beautiful country, but poverty had led to crime and crime to violence. After the death of his mother, he moved in with his maternal grandmother and became a farmer. He learned how to grow corn. When an uncle offered help to him if he moved to New York, he did, but the uncle tired of the responsibility. He abandoned Edgar, leaving Edgar to support himself until he found Reuben and his family. Reuben's family helped Edgar enroll in school and complete his high school diploma. I taught Edgar, too. He always smiled, even though life had not treated him kindly. Listening to the story, I could not understand how this could have happened. To attack another person for no material gain seemed beyond senseless. It was a hate crime, but how could someone hate a stranger so much to do so much damage? And how could someone hate Reuben? Reuben looks like a cherub, sweet-faced and kindly, nothing threatening about his demeanor. Why would someone do this? In this classroom, I teach history. I teach about history in faraway places and history nearby. I teach about heroic deeds and horrible ones. 
there is a sense that, like Ozymandias, the tyrant ends up buried in the sand. Percy Bysshe Shelley had it. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And yet, there is so much violence and hatred in the world. Though one day buried in the sand, it still lives in the world. What produced the kind of hatred that led to the attack? And how can education serve as a tool to prevent the growth of such violence? Where does peace begin? Does it grow in the soil of kindness? Can it only flourish if the earliest years are full of love and possibility? No, it must be more than that. Does it rise to the sun only when it is responsibly cultivated? I don't think so. It can occur at any moment, a commitment to peace. In Buddhism, there is the story of the robber who ends up helping the monk build a road and in the process is transformed. Like the author of Amazing Grace, there can be a moment of light and healing when the person is completely changed. Transformation is possible. There is not one recipe for healing or one recipe for detonating a mushroom cloud of kindness that encompasses the entire sky. But are there actions that can be taken that make peace more possible, kindness more tangible? When I was a child, the developmentally disabled attended alternative schools. They were segregated. In the neighborhood, there was a girl who went to the alternative school. She was my age, but bigger. When I would ride my bicycle through the neighborhood, she would find me and grab the seat of my bike. I would pedal, but not move. I was terrified. I did not know her. She did not attend my school. She was different, and in her segregation, her difference became menacing. She never hurt me. She never threatened me. But I was terrified. Looking back, I realized that she liked me and probably wanted to play. Had we attended the same school, would I have seen her differently? In school, we can all be together, and in being together, we can learn about one another. But we can only learn about one another if we spend time together. If our classes are segregated into honors and non-honors and English language learners and all the myriad ways we separate children, we may not learn that much about one another. And if our school consists of people just like us, we may learn even less. Yet, there is the study of diversity and the study of different belief systems and different cultures, and this is invaluable, but we must break bread together to come to know one another and to cultivate a sense of the family of man. It is not enough to love Harriet Tubman's bravery if there is no encounter with the African-American community, or to admire Cesar Chavez if we do not speak to Latinos in our own neighborhoods or to say we embrace diversity if we always sit with the same people. Peace requires an expansion of the family table, a new definition of the group. Peace is expansive. As Dorothy Day said, the greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart, a revolution which has to start within each one of us. In education, children must be taught the many stories and narratives of the past, and not one narrative. They must interact with students from a variety of backgrounds, and they must be rewarded not only for good grades, but for acts of kindness and compassion. Of course, it is easy to say that education must be confined to quantifiable things like arithmetic and chemistry, but we are not just creating technologies. We are creating the people who will wield those technologies. 
to only speak of benchmarks and not civic education or qualities to emulate or values to have is to ignore the fact that we live in a planet of people, and the very future of this planet of people depends on our ability to interact peacefully with one another. And how can this be done? Perhaps we can start with the wisdom of the Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas ruling. In the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. First, we must bring together the world's diversity in the classroom. Secondly, we must value the narratives of the many and not the one. And thirdly, we must recognize and reward acts of kindness and compassion. When I was a teenager, Nelson Mandela was in prison. As the anti-apartheid movement grew in the 1980s, particularly after the brutality of the apartheid regime in the 70s, there was a sense of many rising to say no to apartheid. In Mandela, there was a person to unify us. Surely to imprison a man for merely writing against the need to overthrow the apartheid government was wrong? How could a demand for equality be sedition and writing words for equality worthy of over 20 years in prison? So even when there were the normal teenage concerns like friends and school and fun, there was a need to gather and shout free Nelson Mandela. And Mandela we rose to be greater than who we were. Like seedlings in the cracked sidewalk, we were drawn to the sun. Every child needs a hero and a role model, and every child needs to know that we are higher than heaven and that our goal is the supreme majesty. Let peace ring and let us all help toll the bell. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that, thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for the day comes from Octavia Butler, who said, Choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunists who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to ask to be told lies. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>